Father, we, we praise you. Thank you, Lord, just for bringing us all together this, this beautiful morning. Thank you for our church, our, our church family. Thank you, Lord, even for just the facility that we have and enjoy. Lord, so much to be thankful for, not the least of which is you and your Son, your Holy Spirit, your Word. And Lord, that's where we want our attention to be right now, on your Word the word of truth, the sum of your word is truth. Lord, may, may your word have its way with us in our hearts and in our, in our minds right now that we would understand it, that, Lord, we would apply it, <clears throat> that it would live well within us. Lord, we thank you for yesterday's just tremendous, tremendous time for the women of Calvary Bible and all that transpired and, of course, the teaching and, and the learning, the fellowship. And Lord, now we just, again, pray for our time with you and in the word this morning. May it bring much glory to you and may it bless our hearts and souls. We pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Living up north, up in the forest there, and somebody said, oh, you got your fishing tie on. I said, yeah, and I've got my forest tie here. It's my opening illustration. It's kind of a, a forest kind of deal. But we lived in the middle of the forest, and with the forest come forest fires, inevitably. It wasn't a matter of if, it was just a matter of when, usually at least once, if not multiple times in the course of a, a season, a fire season, would we experience fires in and around uh, Weaverville or Trinity County or, or Shasta County. And it's just something that you kind of grow to live with. And as destructive as they can be, and some were quite destructive in our, our neck of the woods, I remember at least once or twice where we had things packed up, ready to bug out because, uh, because it was getting close. But they can be obviously very destructive, very destructive. And yet, forest fires can actually do much to promote life. This is from the United States Forest Service, quote, The low-intensity fires prescribed by land managers help add nutrients to the soil and rejuvenate plant life. Burning can add charcoal to the soil and may result in a short pulse of nutrients in the ash. Burning off the dead plant life or weedy plants increases sunlight to the forest floor. This often causes a flush of vegetation in response to the increase in light reaching the soil and available to plants. Forests recover from fires through germination of seed stored in the forest floor. Some trees even rebound, rebound by sprouting branches from basil buds of trees that have been killed. Birds and other animals may also bring in seeds. Some tree species require fire for their seeds to germinate. For example, jack pine seeds are sealed close with a resinous bond that requires high temperatures to open and liberate the seeds, end quote. In other words, friends, what, what I'm wanting you to see from this is that, that even in this destruction, even in this death of some, there is life. There is life to come. And as we begin this Easter season, there is no better understanding of Jesus' death than the life it brings to us who would believe. So some folks have asked me, are we starting Second Thessalonians? And, and I said, no, actually, because we have next week Palm Sunday. And then, of course, we have Resurrection Sunday. And I thought instead of starting Second Thessalonians now and taking a break for a couple weeks then we would just extend our time focusing on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You know, it's a, Easter's a few weeks away or a couple weeks away, and, and uh, there's no time like the present to start kind of focusing our hearts and our minds on these tremendous themes that are all a part of his death and burial and resurrection. And that God might implant in us um, just his truths pertaining to the Easter season. And, and we'll do so with three messages, the first of which beginning today. And we're going to use the book of John for all three. So with that, please go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 11. 
book of John, chapter 11, beginning in verse 47, where today we will consider three events here in our text presented by John that advance the narrative of Jesus going to the cross. In other words, his death, burial, and find out why this was so important. Now, before we get to our text, and actually, I, normally I would have you stand for the reading of God's Word, but it's a, it's a lengthy section, and, and what I decided to do is we're just going to start and jump into it and take it in, in, in chunks. So, uh, so I won't have you stand this morning. Obviously, it doesn't uh, make the Word of God any less. We still honor it and cherish it, but uh, we're just going to do it a little differently today. But we want to set the stage here with a little bit of context. Jesus has just been to the town of Bethany, about two miles east of Jerusalem, where he has raised who? Lazarus. That's right. Lazarus from the dead. That was brother to Mary and Martha. After four days of Lazarus being in the tomb. And when Jesus first arrived there in Bethany, the scripture tells us in John 11 verse 19, that many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Emphasis there on the many. Many people were showing up to this miraculous event. In other words, large crowd had gathered there in Bethany. And at this point, Martha, she goes out to meet Jesus even before he arrives there at the house. And she tells him how Lazarus would not have died if he had just gotten there sooner. And this is when Jesus consoles her with just some of the most, in my mind, beautiful and comforting words in all of Scripture when Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the son of God, even he who comes into the world. Well, Jesus then directs them to remove the stone to which Martha objects, saying that Jesus Uh, Martha objects, except that Jesus says, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? That's in verse 40. They then remove the stone, but before before Jesus calls for Lazarus to come out, he prays to the Father, saying, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. And this is why, friends, it is so important to understand why there was this large crowd that witnessed Jesus command Lazarus to come forth. And he does, to which in verse 45 tells us that many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Now, for the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, this was the last straw. Jesus had to go. And that brings us to our text and our first point that we want to look at from our text. And that is preparing for Jesus' death. Preparing for Jesus' death. And and we have a kind of a letter A right off the bat, which is the problem. Let's look at the text and see what the problem was. This is in John 11, beginning in verse 47, therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Ah, the truth comes out, doesn't it? But before we get there, let's let's just remember that John's gospel is all about belief. It's all about belief in Jesus. It's all about saving faith. Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord, Savior, King, Son of God. And as John started things off back in chapter 1, verse 12, but as many as received him, referring to Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even those who believe in his name. And then we could fast forward to the end of the book. And as things are wrapping up in chapter 20, verse 31, it says, But these, referring to all of Jesus' signs and wonders, have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing 
you may have life in his name. And of course, there are many more calls to believe in between those two, those two bookends. And of course, we understand well the spiritual truth of what it means to believe in Jesus. Namely, it's about the forgiveness of sins, eternal life. But the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, which con- included both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they weren't getting that. They didn't get that. They weren't concerned that people might actually need to be forgiven of their sin and, and go to heaven. Rather, they were concerned about losing what the Scripture describes as their place and, and nation. They weren't even concerned that Jesus might actually be from God, seeing all the incredible miracles that he's done up to this point. And the fact is, they actually knew more of who he was than they were letting on. You might remember when Nicodemus, a Pharisee, came to Jesus by night, back in John chapter 3, verse 2. And he said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Isn't that very interesting? So so maybe they weren't willing to say Jesus was God or the actual Messiah, but they knew he was at least from God and that God was with him. However, what they did publicly was attribute his miracles to Beelzebul. Beelzebul, the the ruler of the demons, a.k.a. Satan. Instead, the leaders here are concerned that they haven't done enough to stop him, saying, what are we doing? Meaning, what are we accomplishing? We haven't done anything to stop him. How are we going to stop this man? He's upsetting everything that we've got going. People are believing in him more than they're believing in us. And if we don't get a handle on this, there is going to be some kind of uprising here of the people against us. And this would cause then, of course, the the very heavy hand of ruthless Rome to come down hard and fast and and destroy our temple and, and crush us as a nation. Something must be done. Well, that takes us to that something that would be their solution. This is our letter B, verse 49. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. In other words, throw Jesus under the bus. It would be better for this one man to die so that we can preserve our temple and our nation. And you got to remember, this is coming from the high priest, the highest one in terms of Authority, religious authority, the one who should be the godliest is actually the one recommending for murder. I mean, just think about it. If, if, if Pope Francis, I'm not a huge fan of Pope Francis, but if he, if he suggested in a session with the cardinals to, to murder some religious figure that they were at odds with, right? Even if that person really was an enemy or the worst of the worst, it shouldn't elicit a murderous plan from supposed godly men. And I just say that by pure illustration. That is nothing that's happening. I just want to make that clear. It's trying to get us to get a handle, get a grip on, on, on what this man is saying. Now here's what's really interesting. Look at verse 51. Now he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. In other words, God gave this bit of prophecy to Caiaphas that indeed Jesus would die for the nation and in so doing would also bring together the children of God. Now Caiaphas would have understood this as those Jews who had been scattered outside of Palestine... But what Caiaphas didn't understand is that the children of God who are scattered abroad actually would extend salvation beyond just the believing Jews to the Gentiles as well, uniting them with Christ. And what God wasn't telling Caiaphas is that he or the other Jewish leaders should be the ones to actually kill Jesus. 
Yet he used this as justification. Caiaphas uses this as justification to enact his murderous plan. Now, we might just pause for a moment and say, well, whose plan was it really? Whose plan was it really? See, back in Genesis 3.15, the Lord, in handing out his consequences for Satan's sin, tells Satan that while he will crush Jesus on the heel, in other words, Satan would play a part in Jesus' death, Jesus will ultimately crush him on the head because Jesus resurrects and ultimately delivers the final death blow to Satan. You might consider some other little sampling of passages that speak to Jesus' death and whose plan it is or was. Psalm 22 and verse 16 tells us, this is a, a messianic psalm of David. David prophesies here as, as and, well, we just should ask, who would these prophecies be coming from? David is prophesying. He says, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Isaiah 53 and verse 5, a fairly familiar passage to many. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And then in verse 9, his grave was assigned with wicked men. Verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. Who was pleased to crush him? The Lord, putting him to grief. In Zechariah 13 and verse 7, it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered. Moving into the New Testament, the prophet Simeon told Mary while holding baby Jesus, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed and a sword will pierce even your own soul. Because, of course, she would watch and witness the death of her son. On three separate occasions, the synoptic gospel writers, the synoptic gospels being Matthew, Mark, and Luke that all kind of share and follow a, a, a common, common thread there. In Matthew 16, 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And in Mark chapter 9, verses 31 to 32, he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. That's very interesting. Luke chapter 18, a third time that Jesus presents his death to the disciples. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. John chapter 2 and verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then in just a few minutes we will read John chapter 12 and verse 7. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. All of these occasions, Jesus prophesying his own death. Oh, okay. So so this this whole Jesus dying thing goes way back, way back to Genesis, continues through the Old Testament into the new. So. Wait a minute then, was, was it then the people's plan to kill Jesus? Or was it God's plan to kill him? Yes. Yes. Go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. 
This is Peter's big sermon on the day of Pentecost. After the Holy Spirit had given those special tongues to the disciples to speak in many different languages so that the gospel could just very easily go forth. Heard by all. And then as Peter begins his sermon, he first speaks of prophecies come true with this blessing of the Holy Spirit. And then he says these condemning words in Acts 2, beginning in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Let me just interject. Whose plan was it for Jesus to die? God's. Who had the original foreknowledge of Jesus' death? God did. Continuing on, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Oh, so who was held responsible for Jesus' death? The Jews. The Jews. Verse 24, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. Excuse me, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So God had the predetermined plan. He had the foreknowledge for Jesus' death. But of course, the responsibility of Jesus being killed would go to the Jews. Then returning to our text, back in verse 53, John 11. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Referring back to, again, the Jewish leadership. And, And of course, this just makes a complete mockery of Jesus's arrest and his trial as the sentence has already been handed down. That takes us to letter C, Jesus's solution. We saw the Jewish leader's solution. Here's Jesus's solution for the time being. Picking up in verse 54, therefore Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. In other words, Jesus realizes, okay, it's time to get out of Dodge for a short time because God's sovereign plan had to play out in just the right way in just the right time. That's interesting, too, to consider God's sovereignty there. We've seen other instances where God's timing of things needed to be preserved, such as in John 6, verse 15. Here it's not the leaders coming after Jesus too early or too late, but rather some of his followers. It says this, So Jesus, perceiving that they, meaning his followers, were intending to come and take him by force to make him king withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. They wanted to do things ahead of God's timetable. Jesus knew that couldn't happen, and so he kind of disappears for a bit. And this is why Jesus would sometimes forbid the disciples to say certain things about him, because his time had not yet come, meaning his death and his exaltation. And he knew that if some things kind of got out in certain arenas, then it would not be conducive to God's timetable. It won't be until John 12 and verse 23 that Jesus will say to Philip and Andrew, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So he and the disciples, they leave Bethany and the suburbs of the big city they travel about 13 miles north to the more rural city of Ephraim until it's time for him to return now what's interesting at this point is that there's a gap of time until we pick up again with verse 55 in our text and we understand this because of what we learned from those other synoptic gospels again Matthew Mark and Luke and the fact is Jesus and the disciples leave Ephraim and they head between Galilee and Samaria this is when, for instance, he heals the ten lepers. He, he speaks of his second coming. He does much teaching, including giving several parables and teaching about the kingdom of heaven. And we get to Jesus' third prediction of his resurrection. Then a healing of blind Bartimaeus and his companion. And, of course, a great story, the salvation of Zacchaeus. Love that one. And then Luke writes in chapter 19, verse 11, while they were listening to these things, meaning while they were there at Zacchaeus's house, listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem. 
And they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So basically, they've kind of made this big circle, and they're back near Jerusalem. This brings us to our kind of second main point, which is preparing for Jesus' arrest. Look back at John 11, now picking up in verse 55. Now the Passover, Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. We'll just pause there for a moment and say that Passover, of course, was that, that celebration that remembered the Jews' exodus from Egypt and the night that the, the angel passed over uh, the, uh, the houses and uh, would strike dead the firstborn male of those houses that did not have the blood on the doorpost. The Passover required a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, as well as a purification period for those that were ceremonially unclean, according to Numbers 9 and verse 6 and following. This could have included things like, well, if you had come in contact with a dead body, for instance, or even a woman's menstrual uh, cycle. There were a host of things that made one unclean that you needed to have go through this uh, purification process uh, before actually being able to then participate in the Passover. Look at verse 56 back in our text. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. So here we have the Jewish leaders making it known amongst the people that they were looking for Jesus. And anyone who would have information as to his whereabouts was to report it so that they could arrest him. And of course, the most obvious place that you might expect to find Jesus show up to during this Passover pilgrimage time would be the temple, because everybody eventually had to end up at the temple. They needed to be able to offer up their sacrifices. But at this point, nobody had seen Jesus surmising that probably because he was on the Jewish leader's most wanted list, he may not show up at all to the temple or even to to Jerusalem for the feast. The fact was, he just simply was not there yet. This is also reminiscent of John chapter 7. Go ahead and turn there for just a moment. Just back up a few pages probably in your Bible. John chapter 7. Just right beginning in verse 1. This is... uh, It's right before another feast, the Feast of Booths, a harvest-type festival, where John writes in chapter 7, verse 1, After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Sound familiar? Now the Feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booths, was near. Go ahead and skip down, friends, to uh, verse 11. Verse 11. So the Jews were seeking him at the feast and were saying, Where is he? There was much grumbling among the crowds concerning him. And some were saying, oh, he is a good man. And others were saying, no, on the contrary, he leads the people astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. So you got these two kind of factions, these two groups, some saying, no, he's a good guy. Some saying, no, he's not. But nobody wanted to say anything because for fear of the Jews. And we might imagine much of the same. Back in our context of John 11. One thing is true. People were having to start coming to a conclusion, if they hadn't already, as to who they believed Jesus to be. I love the way that C.S. Lewis has put it. You might have heard this before. C.S. Lewis suggested that everybody would have to come to one of three conclusions. That Jesus is either a liar, that Jesus is a lunatic... Or that Jesus is indeed Lord. In other words, the claims that Jesus was making, if people believe those things to be false, then he would have to be called a liar. Or if those claims caused him to be viewed as a lunatic, he's crazy saying these things, you know, then then he would be that, just a crazy person. Or the claims then that Jesus made backed up by the miracles meant he was, this is God. This is the Lord. And so if you haven't already done so this morning, boy, I would encourage you. You need to understand very, very clearly, crystal clear, as a matter of fact, who you believe Jesus to be. 
Now, going back to the question of Jesus' whereabouts, it gets answered as we continue on into chapter 12. And this is our third point, preparing for Jesus' burial. First, we have the setting. The setting. Look uh, back there, John 11 again. Or excuse me, John 12, beginning in verse 1. Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was. And like I said, they kind of made this big circle now. They end up back at Bethany, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there. And Martha was serving. I would just toss out and say, don't let yourself think that Martha is serving in, a, in the way that she had served before. No, I I believe that Martha is now serving with her whole heart. It's an act of worship, even the way that she was serving and taking care of Jesus and the people versus how she was the previous occasion. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Now, when we look at some of the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark also tell us this was actually the home of Simon the leper. Someone that we would presume had been healed by Jesus. This takes us to the action. What's the action? What's going on here? Look at verse 3. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now both Matthew and Mark tell us that she anointed his head as well. Nard was from a plant found in the mountains of northern India. It was taken from the root and spikes of this native plant because it was imported from so far away. It was incredibly expensive. Here, a pound under the Roman system of weights and measures would equal about 12 ounces. This was the real deal pure. I mean, this wasn't the watered down eau du toilette or even eau du parfum. But 100% pure, expensive parfum. I got that from Catherine over there, and she ran me through the paces this morning. We do okay, Catherine? Okay. In any case, here comes Mary. Mary shows up with this, this alabaster vial, and she, she breaks it open, and she pours this, this incredibly expensive, costly perfume on Jesus' head, And then she pours it on his feet. And I think, you know, in my theatrical mind, I I see this play out like a movie, you know. And and I imagine at that point, the room just got quiet. I, I think silent as they're watching her do this, kind of wondering what is going on. And then she bends down and she takes her hair and wipes his feet with her hair. And the house is now filled with this this incredible fragrance. And it just must have been quite quite a moment, a a very dramatic moment, I, I would think. Until the silence is broken. Guess who breaks the silence? But Judas Iscariot, so we understand clearly who we're talking about. There was another Judas, one of the disciples. Now, Matthew and Mark also include the other disciples, too, speaking up there as well. But obviously, Judas must have been the ringleader. He must have been the one leading the way. Judas, Iscariot, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him. John interjects. Now, it was already, in other words, in Judas's mind to to do the most Heinous of all acts in human history. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 26, 24, while he's at the table with the disciples during the Last Supper, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Judas was still sitting there at that point when Jesus said that. And the fact that this was already in Judas's mind to betray Jesus gives us at least part of his motivation. He continues, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? Verse 6. Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. This 
this beautiful moment, this beautiful showing of, of love and, and respect and, and honor and exaltation in, in acknowledging who Jesus was is just, just broken by this, this, this evil, evil man who is not concerned about the poor, but he's only concerned about himself. By the way, 300 denarii is about a year's worth of a laborer's wages. Can you imagine a vial of perfume costing a year's worth of wages? I almost didn't believe it. And so I went online just to see if we had any equivalent today. And sure enough, we do. We do. For instance, number five, Chanel Grand Extrait is a fragrance that apparently unfolds like a bouquet of abstract flowers. Whatever that's supposed to smell like, I don't know. It costs $4,200 per ounce, just over $50,000 for 12 ounces. That's not even the most expensive. I thought that would be like, okay, let's say that's just a year's worth, average, uh, you know, American year's worth of wages, certainly not here in Los Angeles. But uh, in any case, the most expensive in the world is called Shumak. $1.29 million a vial. They've only made one vial of it. Seriously, it's made from Indian agarwood, sandalwood, musk, Turkish uh, rose, and several other many ingredients, which the company, of course, will not disclose to the public. $1.29 million. Of course, the, you know, the container is encrusted with diamonds and things all over it, right? But still, right? In any case, this man Judas... This grieving, uh, greedy, thieving, traitorous murderer who could care less about any poor people and only about the 300 denarii that he could have pilfered. That's what is on his mind. Well, Jesus immediately comes to Mary's defense and he presents the truth. The truth this is our letter D. Look at verse 7. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you will always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Now, Matthew 26, verse 12 tells us, For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Not suggesting that she would hold on to it and, and, and use it later on, but, but it's this understanding that it's now about his burial. He says in, in uh, Mark, She has anointed my body beforehand, for the burial. And one wonders if this just made any sense at all to the disciples. Based on what we've read so far, it would seem probably not. It's still just kind of going, going over their heads. You know, making this connection between the perfume being used now to anoint Jesus on his, on his head and his feet. But, but metaphorically, shortly in the future, to embalm him. It's not that they hadn't heard Jesus talk before about his death. It's just still very confusing to them. They weren't even close to fully comprehending what was about to happen. And friends, what we need to not miss here is the stark contrast, the stark difference between Mary's simple, selfless act done out of true worship and devotion to Christ, made even more profound in light of the fact that they would not always have him, versus Judas's selfish, deceitful, treacherous, heinous motives against Christ. Jesus' comment about always having the poor is not meant against the poor in any way or that the poor shouldn't be helped, but rather it was just a challenge to the disciples to keep their priorities straight. Priorities of loving and serving the Lord First and foremost, Mary got it right again, didn't she? She sure did. Look at verse 9. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there, meaning in Bethany. And they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. I mean, everybody likes a good show, don't they? Remember, news traveled a lot slower back then. They didn't have their cell phones. They didn't have internet or texting. Somebody's not, you know, doing the selfie with Lazarus and then putting it out there, you know, to the world. But word has now finally gotten around that Jesus did raise Lazarus from the dead in a very dramatic way. And remember, we spent time looking at that because the crowds were there witnessing all of that. And now the people want to see both. 
They want to see alive Lazarus, but they also want to see Jesus who raised him. Look at verse 10. But the chief priests planned to put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So the plot thickens, doesn't it? Lazarus now became a problem. He became a problem because this is, this is a big time Messiah miracle. The Sadducees also had a problem. They were part of that Jewish council as well. They had a problem with Lazarus raising from the dead. Remember why? Because they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. That's, that's an issue. What's their answer? Destroy the evidence. Destroy the evidence. Then Lazarus needs to go to. Lazarus needs to die. Commentator Leon Morris writes this. It is interesting to reflect that Caiaphas had said, it is expedient for you that one man die for the people. But one was not enough. Now it had to be two. Thus does evil grow. End quote. Well, friends, as we, as we start to wrap things up here this morning and ask, what do we take away from this? This is this, this incredible section of narrative text. What, what, what should we learn from this? What should we walk away with this morning in regard to Jesus' death and his burial? And I'm, I might have us consider a, a question. And the question would be this. So why? Why? We know that Jesus died. We know that he was buried. But why? Why did he have to die? And, and the answer to that is both on, on one sense pretty quite easy. And yet at the same time quite complex. But let's just look at five brief reasons why Jesus had to die. The easy explanation is that Jesus needed to die as a sacrifice for our sins. Theologically speaking, it's called, here's your, we'll give you $10 for this theological words, substitutionary atonement. I know you've heard of that, substitutionary atonement. Atonement just meaning to cover or even to wash away. And biblically speaking, it refers to God's act of dealing with the primary human problem of sin. Sin for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, not even one. The wages of sin is death. And this is how God decided that he could deal with this problem so that man indeed could be forgiven, so that we could have that fellowship with God in his eternal kingdom if our sin could be dealt with. In Matthew 26 and verse 28, Jesus says, For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. When he's there in the upper room, right? So blood, forgiveness of sins, poured out for us. This takes us back to the Old Testament sacrificial system, right? Where God decided that the payment required to appease his wrath against sin would be a blood sacrifice, a life, a life without blemish, spot, or stain, a perfect, sinless life to pay the price for our very imperfect, sinful lives. In the Old Covenant, it was, of course, animals that paid the price. In the New Covenant, God moves from animals to a human being. But not just any human being. He would be the all-perfect, once-for-all human sacrifice but where is god going to find somebody like that this all perfect righteous sinless person i mean since adam and eve they don't exist and that's right they don't because sin is passed on through the seed of man only god's son born of a virgin born of a woman could be that perfect sinless sacrifice. Hence God then sending his own son Jesus into the world. To live that life that we never could. And then of course die on our behalf. His blood shed for us. He would die in our place. 
on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins. Secondly, secondly, he also had to die in order to redeem us. Redeem us. It means to purchase us, to to buy us back, to set us free by the payment of a price. We read this in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 to 19, where, where Peter tells us that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious what? Blood. Precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Thirdly, he had to be a propitiation. We've got all kinds of $5 theological words today, huh? Propitiation for our sins, referring to how God's wrath for our sin would be appeased and averted from us who deserved it and placed upon Jesus And we go back to that Isaiah 53 passage where it says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. This would please the Lord, appease his wrath. Fourthly, Jesus had to die to justify us. He had to die to justify us. Justify or justification, it's a legal term and it means fully righteous. Your record of sin has been expunged. It has been wiped clean. You are no longer guilty, but in fact are seen and understood by God as being completely righteous. Not based on anything that you or I did, but solely on the righteousness imputed to us by Jesus. He takes our sin. He gives us his righteousness. It's an amazing truth. In Romans 5 and verse 8, Paul writes, But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ, what? Died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood. We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Amen. And fifthly, Jesus had to die in order to reconcile us. Reconcile us back to God. The language of reconciliation in the Bible describes a a thoroughly changed relationship. Going from enemies to Friends, it speaks of God's changed relationship with people because of the death of Christ. We read this in Romans 5 and verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Well, friends. Jesus had to die. He absolutely needed to die so that these things could take place. Namely, your salvation. My salvation. A wiping clean of our slate so that we could, we could live for all eternity with Christ in God's heavenly realm. And as we now officially close I would just ask you this question again where do you stand in regard to what you think and believe about Jesus just listen to Jesus's own words he said he who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather me scatters so where do you stand Are you one that has believed Jesus to be just uh, a liar? That these claims that he has made is just, you know, bunko. It's it's falsities. It's untruths. Or do you think, or have you thought that he he sounds like he's pretty, you know, a little crazy. A little crazy with what he's saying. Or... Do you understand him to be the Lord God that he is because of what he has said and what he has done? 
We could ask it another way. Are you a Judas? Are you a Judas? Are, are you somebody that is kind of, you know, here at church and just kind of kind of kind of going along with things, you know, because you see some kind of just benefit for yourself, some kind of selfish motivations for for being here at church or or are you kind of the fickle crowds? Are you like the crowds that only believe because they saw Lazarus or even Thomas who needed to see the the marks in Jesus before he would believe? Or are you one who actually can believe by faith, believe by faith that Jesus is who he is, the son of God? Or are you a Martha? Are you a Mary with pure love and devotion for Jesus? Hopefully it's that last. And that's my hope and prayer for all of us this Easter season, this resurrection time that we would just offer up to the Lord just our our pure love and devotion for, for Him, for His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would beg of you, choose now. If you haven't chosen before, choose now. Because you may leave here today and you may not again have the opportunity to choose. Let's pray. Father, may we be sobered by what we have learned today. I think sometimes we just say so quickly, and I don't know flippantly is the right word, but just talking about your death, and it is extremely important. And it's an extremely solemn occasion something to think deeply about and consider with great gravitas and why you had to die and the fact that you did die and you did so willingly i pray that our hearts and minds lord would just really have a a a great focus on your son this easter season and we pray this all in your son jesus's name Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.